Unlocking Your World of Creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Mark introduces you to some of the world's leading creative talent from publishing, film, music, restaurants, medical research, and more. You'll discover how to tap into your most original thinking, how to organize your ideas, and most of all, how to make the connections and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity. Welcome back, friends, to our podcast, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. And in the last few episodes, we've been to Nigeria, we've been to Vietnam, Australia, and today our creative travels take us to West Virginia. And we're talking with author Stephen Altman. Stephen, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm excited to be here. And you know, listeners, we have a chance to talk to many kinds of authors, writers, songwriters even, who have different styles, different fingerprints that they put on the work. But I can guarantee you today, you'll not see another novel written in the form that Stephen Altman writes in, and that's in verse, uh, specifically in sonnets. Stephen, I can't wait to get into the inspiration behind this and even the choice of the format. Oh, boy, it's been quite a journey, as they say, and I'll be glad to talk about it. Two of my favorite subjects are involved. One is the uh, English poet John Keats, whom I fell for madly when I was 21 years old. He was born about 150 years before me, so nothing came of it. But the other part of the other thing I love to talk about is myself. And so you just ask away and I'll be glad to tell you anything you want to know about this book. Well, that sounds great. The title of the book is uh, intriguing in and of itself. It's Blues for the Muse. And so right off the bat, we have this idea of a muse. You know, we all of us creative people like to think that we have this little voice or this little inspiration. What's the uh, story behind the muse in this book? In this book, which is a novel told in 202 bits of poetry. This novel is a film noir on the page. So someday Paramount Pictures will pick it up, I hope, and you'll be able to watch it on the screen without wading through the verse. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, though, uh, what you'll meet on the page is Vigna Fumento, who is a fetching Italian femme fatale. Uh, If you watched film noir when you were younger, or even the modernist film noir movies, there's always a femme fatale for whom the hero just um, loses all of his brains. And that's what happens here as well. Vigna Fumento is modeled on a uh, syndrome or a concept that's been with me my whole life, which is that if only I met the uh, right inspiring person, I would be producing all kinds of great work. So I created a hero in the uh, story named Tom Jerome, who in fact does meet his muse. Whether that works out easily or cleanly for him, whether it leads to creating what he thought he'd be creating, you have to read the book for that. But the deal here is that she knows she's a muse and she likes the role and she plays it to the hilt. And Stephen, I was curious, did you have this... Yeah, this is almost like when I asked musicians, did you have the verse or did you have the song first? But I mean, did did you know that you wanted to write something in this poetry style? Or did you say, hey, I've got this really great story. I wonder how I could tell it creatively. What an inspired question, because part of the inspiration for the story was my love of John Keats, who wrote in, of course, in verse. But when I got the idea for the story, and I got the idea in the cemetery where Keats is buried, where I spent a whole lot of time in the early part of the last decade, 
I thought I'd write it in prose because I'd never written any poetry. And I had written some prose, a Western from long ago, um, among various short stories. But uh, so I tried to write it in prose and it was the worst, flattest pancake of a story you've ever seen. And what I realized after a while was it had to be told in verse because that's what Keats would have done. And this was, I mean, I live and breathe Keats. And although I had virtually no experience with poetry, I started writing verse. And I'm not even sure now, Mark, whether I should call myself a poet, but you work on it for eight years, you learn a thing or two. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. The listeners are already thinking, I can't imagine a novel written in verse. So perhaps we could set the stage here a little bit for folks and uh, have you read us a passage from the book. Well, sure. What, what I'll do is I'll, it's hard to find freestanding sonnets because one leads to the next. But there is a, and then there's context. I, I would mention some character in the sonnet and you'd say, who's that? But I will give you a freestanding sonnet, which comes early in the story. When Vina and Tom Jerome, our hero, are first getting to know each other, they're in a hotel in the Aventine. And uh, he's in that rosy afterglow and he'd like to know more about her. And she says this, when I was 15, I was like a peach that all the local fellows have to squeeze, a peach that's dangling on the tree and each competes to be the first to pluck it. Please, oh please, my mama begged me, Venia, don't be weak. But I knew sometimes weak is strong. And was I wrong? A girl can have the world for just a song. I told her so. She dragged me off to speak with her physician, such a kindly gentleman, a gray and proper Swiss, so full of sound advice. He reassured my mama, wished us luck, and then at midnight called me on the phone. He'd sacrifice his life for me, his work, his wife, and all he had. So I ran off with him. I'm very bad. Now that's a complete sonnet. That's 14 lines. It shows you just about how long you can hang in there and get through one little pellet of this uh, vast bowl of kibbles that is my novel. Yes. The, um, now remind us from our uh, college English class, what, what is the form that a sonnet must take? What is the definition? There are different kinds of sonnets, but there are a couple of things that are standard. A sonnet, I always have to say with exceptions, but a sonnet nine times out of 10 will be 14 lines of rhymed verse in iambic pentameter. When I talk to you, we emphasize syllables without even paying attention. But if I said to you syllable instead of syllable, you'd say you're emphasizing the wrong part of the word. So when you write in iambic, you're going da-da, 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 da-da. One, two, three, four, five. Each foot in those five is da-da, 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 da-da. So when you write a sonnet, you write 14 lines in iambic pentameter and they have to rhyme a certain way. That is if you hold by the rules. Shakespeare did it one way. The Italian who is credited with inventing it, a fellow named Petrarch did it a different way, but they spell out the scheme with a little roadmap of letters. Um, Shakespeare's is A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. Petrarch's is a different one. Mine is sometimes Shakespeare, sometimes Petrarch, and sometimes things I make up. The point is that there are no sonnet police. And if you're trying to get through the damn thing the way I've been for eight years, then every once in a while you break a rule and you tell yourself it's just fine. Right, line F might just have to be something else. 
Well, you, you, you still have to rhyme in an orderly fashion, but nobody said it had to be the order that Shakespeare did it in. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare, that. by the way, wrote 154 and I wrote 202, so I'm crowing about that. Yeah, <laughs> something to be proud of. Well, let's go back to the inspiration of the story and the trip to Rome that you yourself took. You know, when I was 21 years old, I, I fell madly in love with John Keats, who, when he gave up the profession of medicine for poetry, was also 21 years old. And in the four years that remained to him in life, he got better at poetry every year. And I was working on my own writing. I was working on what I should do with my life and so on. And we kind of made, I'm serious, Mark, we kind of made the journey together for four years till we were both 25. And I was an ordinary guy at 25. I was going to be an academic. I was getting married, all of that. I was not going to change the world, but I was going to continue living. Keats couldn't, he had tuberculosis. And at 20, almost 25, his friends sent him from England where he grew up to Rome to see if he could recover from the tuberculosis. So an English winter would have killed him. It turned out that a Roman winter did kill him. And when he died, he was buried in what was essentially a pasture up against the uh, southernmost wall of the city, what was called the Aurelian Wall. Uh, the Pope had said nobody who wasn't Catholic could be buried in the city because it was uh, sacred ground. Uh, Keats was uh, you know, an English Protestant and a few graves had accumulated there. And by then there were a dozen or two. Keats was buried there. And soon thereafter, they closed that segment and opened up the adjoining land to become a regular cemetery for Protestants or European travelers who weren't uh, Catholic. So I knew the Keats story my whole life. I got to know it more and more because I obsessed over it. Keats has been my guiding star. What did I do with my life? What did I do with my creativity? What would Keats have done with his had he been given the days? And why was I given the days? So in 19 or 2011, I went to Rome specifically to um, visit the grave, pay homage, if you will. And this is true. When I walked across the uh, open part of the cemetery toward his grave, there was a woman in startling red with long white elbow length gloves on, smoking a cigarette and looking awfully fashionable. And um, it was as if somebody sent her down on a sunbeam for me. Uh, I got to know her that day and that evening. She was not Vigna Fumento, my heroine, by any means. But I started thinking there's something going on here. She and I walked around the cemetery and we talked about what I just said to you, which is, how come you and I are here and John is not? Now, that was the inspiration for the thing. I got to know Italians. I stayed in Italy and went a couple of months a year for years thereafter. I got to know them. I got a sense uh, as much as any uh, introductory uh, touristy American boy can get used to get acquainted and all the little bits of those, those trips. But here's the important part. All the little bits that had gone into making me over the course of my 60 years made themselves known. And that's a point I would like to make about this whole experience of writing the story, which is that what you learn if you live with a piece of work the way I did is what you are made of. There are 8 billion people in the world. There's only one me. There's only one Mark Stinson, maybe somebody else close, but there's no specific Mark Stinson who has your accumulation of 
experiences, inclinations, taste, ambition, skills, drive, intuition, all of these things were there in me. And when I gave them an outlet, they all came together. I just had to give them time and take it easy on myself while I did the work. There were bits and pieces of the 10-year-old me in there. And I'll tell you about that if you'd like to know. There are pieces of the 21-year-old I just mentioned. There were the 60-year-old in there. And when I was done, when I finished this thing, I was nearly 70 but I had grown in ways that it took decades and decades to prepare for. Mm -hmm. And, and all is, uh, I guess, fodder for the work itself, right? All this inspiration that came in, um, certainly in this kind of format, the work is a different kind of work. I mean, it's one thing for the author to say, I'm going to sit down at the typewriter and I'm going to write, but you also have this format that you're trying to fit in. Um, how did that process, you know, go for you uh, over time? Over time, I guess from it, a work ethic standpoint, were you able to stay with it? I stayed with it, but I wasn't quick. That's for sure. It took eight years. It took Lin Manuel Miranda and his team, I think, seven to do Hamilton. It took me eight to write this little volume. <laughs> On the other hand, Lynn Manuel's a genius and he had a team of geniuses, whereas I'm just me sitting in my house. In I was going to ask you how much your team helped you on this. Yeah, the team, the team consists of those few people in your little world who you let into the process. One of the things about writing a, a book when you or any creative act, when you are not motivated by commerce, and you are not motivated by the celebrity machine or by um, getting past some gatekeeper somewhere, is that you can decide who's a participant. If I had written this as a treatment for a screenplay, I would have had to let all kinds of people in. But instead I got to pick and choose. Those who helped me, those who made me feel empowered and strong, made me feel as if what I were working on was worth it, were the ones who stayed and those who didn't give me that, I didn't have to let them in. I didn't have to keep them if they managed to get their nose under the tent. That was another lesson. It's insanely valuable, insanely valuable to know why you're in this thing in the first place. Mm -hmm. If you're in this thing because it's in you and it's gotta come out, if it's the thing you really want to do and say, then it doesn't matter whether somebody buys it. And if nobody buys it, you're free have humble but exacting goals is what I kept telling myself. My humble goal was to see the damn thing in print. My exacting goals was that it would be what I wanted it to be. I would never settle for less than that. Mm -hmm. And now that, well, we had a garden party in Shepherdstown at the beginning of October. 85 people showed up in the neighbor's garden. There was a, there was a little jazz quartet there or a duo there. Um, everybody came by, most of the people had read it. And that was, that, what greater gratification could I have than to have stayed with this project and had my friends look at me and say, you know what, I'm surprised, it's very good. <laughs> and the fact that people are reviewing it now on Amazon and saying, you know what, I never read poetry, but this was good. Well, that, that's wonderful. But the important thing is that eight years ago when I decided to switch from prose to poetry, it worked out. And now I don't have to do that anymore, damn it. Yeah, you could do something else. Yes. But the fact that it came from you, I do want to pursue that a little bit more. But first, uh, perhaps share another passage with us 
that people might uh, appreciate the form and the verse uh, and the story a little bit more? Well, I'll give you one that just establishes the setting, even though this comes at the end, because the story begins and ends in that cemetery, which, by the way, is my second home. Um, there's a bench that I worked on where I sat and worked on this many, many an hour. It has a plaque on it because I endowed the bench so that the bench sits in front of Keats's grave and it has my favorite quote from Keats on it rather than my name, which I would be undeserving. I once sat on that bench and I watched the little gray cloud approach through the skies of Rome, stop overhead and rain on me and move on. I am a big believer that this thing was meant to be. I'm also a big believer that everybody's got something in them like this. If you work on anything other than that, you're not working on what you're supposed to be working on. Anyway, I'm good reminder. You of you both here. I love that. This is a sonnet that just describes where they are. The meadow by the old Aurelian wall was where they buried at the Pope's decree those sorry travelers, non-Catholics all, who while in Rome fell prey to their mortality. Above, a marble pyramid had towered for 2000 years. Children played, the sheep would graze, the daisies flowered. And here, some decades later, Keats was laid. He died in Joseph Severn's arms, a friend whose guileless generosity belied heroic depths of feeling. With him till the end he was, and now he's buried by his side. Here on the wooden bench before their graves sits someone. When she spots Jerome, she waves. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah, I think a lot of these reviews that you mentioned uh, also mention that there's some humor, there's some emotion, there's a kind of a roller coaster ride of all the emotions in there. Tell um, us about that. This book is under the category of comic adventure, romantic adventure, humorous prose. Those are the things that Amazon's algorithm is looking at right now because the thing is fun. Mm -hmm. It's fun because it's got things in it you wouldn't imagine were in the same book. It's got Vigna Fumento, this film noir heroine who is married to a mobster who owns a restaurant where she is the host, a very stylish restaurant. But when he's not working at the restaurant or overseeing the restaurant, he's a gangster and pornographer, and he's a movie buff. And when Tom Jerome tells Vina that he makes movies, that he's a Hollywood director, somehow or another, and I won't spell everything out, he gets directed to her husband, who says, I'd love you to make a movie for me. In fact, you have no choice, and I'd like it to star my wife. And Jerome, who has no intention of doing that kind of thing, says, well, I'll take the money and then I'll steal your wife and run. All kinds of complications ensue. There's a cast of characters who is in almost any book like this turn out to be gangsters who really want to be movie stars. But there are bits and pieces in this story of everything so that one character will quote uh, Omar Little from The Wire to another character, or one character will quote John Keats, who nobody ought to know about, but the other one will say, oh yeah, I know that line. So this kind of thing is happening throughout. My key need as someone who hoped people would read this was that they would get it, but also that they would have the opportunity to get it by understanding the poems and not having to struggle with them. That they would have the delight of reading one rhyme after another and being carried from sonnet to sonnet. 
This is hugely important to me because I love poetry, but most of the poetry that's written now is not my idea of entertainment. I wrote this to entertain myself, to say the things in it that are quite heartfelt, but to do it in a way where you'd really want to read it and maybe even read it again. I like that. And I like that uh, people at this garden party were not only delighted, but they were surprised to be delighted. They're oh, like, I had no idea I, I, that I, A, I could read a book like this, but B, that I would enjoy it. I've heard uh, this about blues from, for the muse again and again from people that I, I, they, they ought to teach this in school for poetry instead of that stuff we had to read. I don't want J. Alfred Prufrock. I want to read about this guy and this girl at this hotel in the Aventine. Well, it worked out pretty well. I have no idea if it'll ever get beyond the small circle of readers, which will probably be in the hundreds at most, but who knows? The goal here was not to get a vast audience, although that would be lovely. The goal here was to do what I needed, and I did. Yes. Well, let's talk about that for a second. And that uh, part of the podcast, when I talk about getting the connections to get your work out into the world, tell us about that process for you that says, hey, I've fulfilled my creative mission. I've written the book, but now I need to get it published. Where did you start? How did it work? Well, what I did was I gave up on the idea. I always... I used to teach some of this uh, stuff, writing short stories to adults. And I used to say, the first thing you need to do before you write this story is decide why you're writing this story. Are you writing this story to publish it? Are you writing this story to become a best-selling author? Are you writing this story just for you? I know when you, when you go out in your backyard to plant your garden, you're not creating the Bronx Botanical Gardens as your goal. When you take up the guitar, you're not looking for a gig at some popular joint. What you're doing is you're doing it for yourself. If that's the case and you're doing it for yourself, then you can come to terms with the fact that none of the gatekeepers may open the gate for you. If you are me and you're writing a verse novel where you have to, you have to, you have to tell people what a verse novel is, where nobody's read a verse novel, where they don't read poetry in the first place by and large, where they've had tedious experiences with poetry, well, what you do is you say, okay, I'm going to write this, and if I have to publish it myself, I will. There are people out there, uh, one particularly good one is called New Shelves Books. There are people out there who will help you get your text into print in a, in a beautiful way. I drew into the process the person who runs New Shelves Books, but I also drew into the process local folks who illustrate and design, and we made a little project after the book was finished, was written, we made a little project of creating a gorgeous product. So therefore you have this beautiful volume. So if you just want to put it on your table and say, look at me, I'm literate, you can do it. But if you open it up and read it, that's the part that I was most concerned about. Now, I had to make the decision early that I wasn't going to bring it to a publisher. The reason is that life is short. Publishers take a long time to make decisions and the place your poetry goes to first, the place your prose goes to first if you're unknown, is to um, readers who are very, very, very low down the totem pole. Interns, you know, who are there for the summer, that kind of thing. And the publisher has saved the stack of over the transom manuscripts till the summer so an intern could do it. I can't wait around for that. I wrote this thing to have readers. And the most important readers were that circle of folks who I could reach if I put the thing in print myself. So for me, it was a two-step deal. The first step was to get a 
copy of the book into existence and to make sure it was available on Kindle too, but then to hope that by publicizing it, somebody who actually has a larger operation than I do might pick up on it and say, hey, you know what? We'll put the power of Kanaf behind this thing. I have no hopes for that, but serendipity does happen. So I encourage all of my friends, tell your friends, tell it to the people in the book club, tell your friend who says he's got a father-in-law who knows somebody in publishing, let's see what happens. Nobody would have thought I'd ever write the thing in the first place. So who knows, maybe something even bigger will happen. Exactly. Well, I will definitely put the link for the Amazon copy in the show notes, but where can we connect with you, Stephen, and uh, follow your work? You've got a very prolific blog uh, that tells even more stories and stories behind the book. So I'd love people to be able to find you. Uh, that would be delightful. If, uh, if I begin to get more readers of the blog, I threaten you with writing more blog posts. <laughs> the blog is called, or the site, which also has uh, links to where you can buy the book, is called bluesforthemuse.com. And there's also a Facebook page, Blues for the Muse, on Facebook. Blues for the Muse on Facebook is where you're more likely to run into me every day or two, because I always put something up there, because the rule is you need to maintain a continual presence. I maintain a continual presence for right now for a very small number of devoted fans. Well, that's great. Every time uh, they read, I'm sure they're inspired even more because you just keep the thread going. And that's what I like about it. Thank you. I have uh, right now, now that it's in print, I have no deadline and I can spend time um, promoting the book, but also conveying my little, uh, what's it, apostolic message of uh, go out there and do your particular thing because there's nobody really who has the power to stop you if you want to do it yourself. Well, I sure appreciate you coming on the program and sharing uh, not only your work, but your inspiration behind it. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And listeners, I hope you gained from this too. Uh, just as a reminder, Stephen's book is called Blues for the Muse. You can check it out online and at your favorite booksellers, I'm sure. So come back again next time. We're going to continue our round-the-world journeys to talk to creative practitioners of all kinds to explore their unique fingerprint on the work. Like today, we've talked about a novel written in verse. What else is going on out there in the creative world, and what could inspire you to put your own fingerprint on your work? We'll find out how creative people get inspired, how they organize their ideas, and how they get the confidence and the connections to launch their work out into the world. Until next time, I'm Mark Stenson, and we're unlocking your world of creativity. Take care. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and thepeaceroom.love. We've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only 99 cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer. Our podcast is supported by Adobe and the Adobe Creative Cloud, the world's best creative app and services, so you can make almost anything you can imagine wherever you're inspired. We use Adobe to help make this podcast, using Audition, Premiere Rush, InDesign, and more. So join the creative community with the Adobe Creative Cloud, and let's make something better, unlocking your world of creativity.